People are being pulled in if they're if the bots go uncountered. You can't convince a bot. They are either a program or a paid representative that aren't going to change their minds. But you must engage with the bot. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. This episode, I'd like to call The Rational Art of War for Social Media Warriors. This is starting a series of podcasts meant to be kind of a battle manual for the everyday person who wants to join the fight for what they believe in online, but doesn't have the resources of, say, a Google or a Facebook to identify thousands of folks who might be swayed easily to your viewpoint. We know that any sufficiently polarized political issue out there, there's likely to be lots of funded propaganda trying to sway our viewpoints and influence public opinion. Audit applications that track inactive and fake accounts show that a significant fraction of politicians' followers are not actually real people, but are bots. Why would anyone listen to me in particular on this issue? I don't have a lot of followers. I'm not swaying thousands of people by data mining your social media footprint. I think persuasion starts with a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And to sway public opinion, we need to make lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations between uh, people who are pushing the agenda of others, maybe unknowingly, and people who are well-versed in the science. This is how we persuade others of the virtues of our arguments. I started this podcast to to train a fellowship of like-minded rational warriors to fight the relentless hordes of influence bots that otherwise tend to dominate social media discussions. I want this podcast to be the rational art of war for the digital generation, and I'd like to be your Sun Tzu. As always, if you enjoy my content, please hit like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. We need to spread this word around and train a horde of people to work with us on spreading the rational view. Now, there are many facets of digital warfare. How do you identify bots? What are bots? Well, bots are like automated uh, programs or scripts that spam comments into social media, pushing an agenda. These things can be, these programs can be purchased online and programmed up with a few uh, catchphrases uh, that they'll cycle through. Typically, a bot is going to be a, a new profile uh, with a very few friends and all posts will be uh, on this one topic. Um, their profile picture is maybe a model or a stock photo. Um, they probably recently joined the application. They have weird info in their bio that doesn't really make a lot of sense. They're if you look in their friends, you can see that they don't typically don't make sense. Like, for example, you might have an American uh, so-called account with all Russian friends or, you know, three or four different friends uh, that don't make any sense at all. Um, and it only posts propaganda memes. And these are highly polished 
um, bits of, of information uh, that try to rile you up or create fear or cause a response or um, cause an uncritical share uh, to people who agree. Now that's the, the bots. The second category of uh, bots are humans that are paid to write articulate comments to push an agenda. And these also exist. It's well known that governments have paid groups of supporters to spread their message in social media forums. Uh, I've found evidence that Greenpeace pays rogue scientists thousands of dollars to influence public opinion against nuclear energy, for example. Strategies of, of these influencers include buying fake followers to upvote their opinions. Um, there was a comedian who uh, was able to uh, buy one million followers for four hundred dollars, um, but these aren't really real followers. These are these are basically bots. Again, they're not people. And then the third class of uh, what I would call a bot or a term a bot are vulnerable humans who've been co-opted uh, by classes one and two uh, through tribalism uh, without appropriate skepticism. They basically accept the polished memes uh, because they're part of a tribe and they don't have the, the scientific background or the critical thinking skills or the skepticism to be able to uh, track these things down and, and question them properly. Now, when you're interacting with bots, they typically start by posting a much recycled talking point. And if you've been into any particular discussion, you've heard all of these stories over and over again. These are recycled talking points. In the energy transition discussion groups that I'm very familiar with, we often hear, what about Chernobyl? What about Fukushima? What about the waste? Nuclear is too slow or expensive. What about uh, Lazard and uh, LCOE? Uh, in the creation versus evolution uh, discussion groups, we hear, if we evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? We hear, evolution is just a theory. And on and on. There, there's tired old tropes that are easily, um, easily rebutted with a few lines of text. However, when you effectively challenge a bot with information, they will not admit defeat. They will, they are programmed to switch to the next argument or the next talking point. They never admit defeat, or if they run out of arguments, they'll resort to ad hominem. They will try to cut you down or send you off on some sort of a gish gallop by posting a whole bunch of misinformation that you then have to struggle to rebut. So their their whole uh, their whole process is deflect, 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 uh, and never admit defeat and continue posting the meme because they're paid by the meme effectively. You can't convince a bot. They are either a program or a paid representative that aren't going to change their minds. But you must engage with the bot. Now, a lot of people don't do this because they realize it's futile. And if you've been in any of these uh, groups for any amount of time, you, your patience runs low. But if you do not counter them, you fail because you, you, you probably are familiar with the Nazi propaganda machine, which operated on the premise of the big lie. Rhetoric becomes adopted as common knowledge by frequent retelling of an uncountered lie. So if we don't show uh, simple counter arguments, we don't show that these 
we don't we need to present a tag to uh, the critical minds out there to show that these memes are nonsense. The bot is not your audience. Don't be frustrated by talking to a bot. You still need to engage. The bot is not your audience. The bot is pushing an agenda. Your audience is the quiet majority who are reading along and nodding to the bot's message, saying to themselves, I've heard this argument before. I wonder if anyone intelligent out there who knows about this stuff disagrees with this opinion. So people are being pulled in if, they're un if the bots go uncountered. To convince the audience, your response must be convivial, concise, and correct. This is why you can't lose your temper, temper and resort to insults. It doesn't hurt the bot. It hurts you. It hurts the line that you're pushing. People will say, oh, he's incensed. He's, he doesn't have a good counter. Or she. To achieve this goal of a zen-type response, it's helpful to have preloaded arguments for most of the tired talking points, which you can modify to suit the flavor of the bot. You should, if you're going to be doing this, set a limit of the number of engagements you want to take on during a day uh, to conserve your sanity and energy. Most of the audience will not follow beyond three or four responses. Uh, the goal is not to win against the bot. You cannot. The goal is to persuade the audience you must show that there's reasonable and simple refutations to the false argument. I will often continue engaging with a bot to the point of ad hominem. Once, once they start calling names or, or trying to cut you down, then I'll just, that's enough. I don't want to be involved anymore. If you make a mistake, which happens, admit it, correct yourself and move on. That sort of integrity shows through to the audience. Very rarely you stumble upon what I would call a true knowledge seeker. Someone who is open-minded enough to listen to your arguments and revise their opinions. And this is not a bot. They sound like a bot at first. These people may ardently post tribal memes, uh, and but they're smart enough to question their biases when presented with a self-consistent argument, and they aren't yet uh, bought in to the tribal meme. They probably haven't thought about it much, and they uh, are the, the uh, category number three. They've been convinced by the retelling of a lie without too much critical thought. So what you do is you stimulate their critical thinking, and potentially, just once in a while, you can turn one of them uh, to the truth. Where do you find these knowledge seekers if you want to engage with them? Uninitiated knowledge seekers are rarely encountered in the wild on social media due to the echo chamber effect. Typically, if you're in a particular topic as someone who's uh, researched the topic and you're posting on a group dedicated to the topic, you're surrounded by a lot of people who have been in the same position and you, and you have regulars, effectively, and you don't have a lot of uh, people coming in from outside uh, to discuss. Longtime members of these discussion groups have heard all the arguments and either are allies or foes. Knowledge seekers can be found in the comments section of, your, of a topical news article, for example, or in threads in groups unrelated to your topic, uh, municipal groups, for example, or, or community groups. Uh, so if your topic comes up, that's a perfect 
time to uh, convince a lot of people uh, by putting together a very cogent, concise, and convivial response. So as an example, I want to go through a interaction that I had with a knowledge seeker on nuclear power. This is a real exchange that I had with someone over a two-day period. There was something like 25 messages back and forth over this period. Uh, so I'm going to ask my beautiful wife, Sarah, to uh, read the responses of the, uh, of the other person, who at first I took for a bot. And I will re read my responses, and you can see how this goes. And perhaps uh, you'll see how uh, to do this yourself. So uh, over to you as the, um, as the first post. Right. Nuclear energy generates hazardous wastes and is not truly clean energy. So I respond. Every power source generates hazardous waste. Nuclear, because of its high power density, generates the least and stores it all safely. The solid ceramic fuel pellets are also very easy to store safely. So much so that nobody has ever been killed as a consequence of nuclear reactor spent fuel bundles. No other energy source is this safe. The hazards of spent fuel decrease over the course of a few hundred years to the point where you would have to grind it up and snort it to harm yourself. Come back and talk to us once solar panels and windmills are required to recycle all of their hazardous waste, or bury them in a deep geological repository so the lead and cadmium and toxic metals won't leach into the water. Throw stones at nuclear once all the coal and gas plants that kill millions every year are required to capture all of their exhaust and bury it. Every hazardous waste, like clean coal is renewable, clean and green? There is no clean coal. If you read my post, I said that to be, a clean, to be clean, a power source would need to capture all their exhaust and store it safely. This is not required for any energy source except nuclear, as far as I know. Y'all can both stop trying to mansplain terminology to me. I know the definition of clean, clean green, renewable, sustainable, etc. is not based on anyone's opinion or their preferences over any other sources of energy. There are specific criteria that defines each term. Capture hazardous waste and bury it in the ground is not equivalent to generates no hazardous waste. There are still negative externalities from burying your problems. Ostrich with its head in the sand, gif. <laughs> Maybe I'm confused about what you are claiming. Have you discovered a power source that generates no hazardous waste stream in its manufacturing and operation? It's the criteria in words, hazardous wastes, clean and green, that needs to be clearly referenced. Wastes can exist and be captured, and some cannot, and waste can exist and be non-hazardous or hazardous waste. You are using the phrase, wastes can be captured, referencing nuclear, lacks consideration of the extent of the nuclear waste hazards are insignificant. Fracturing wastewater is buried, but that stuff is hazardous, the same as nuclear waste is hazardous. Just because nuclear is not fossil fuel does not exempt it from definition of clean or green, which burying hazardous waste eventually can be equivalent danger 
and hazards to land and groundwater as a Brownsfield Superfund. Nuclear is neither a clean nor green energy source once life cycle of production is included through to the end of life of byproducts or wastes. Uh, I'm having some trouble understanding the point you are trying to make. Maybe this will help. I've attached a figure showing the different resources required for various technologies we can use to decarbonize. Which of these would you call green and what are the criteria you use? I then posted a chart comparing materials critical for transition to a low carbon economy uh, that shows uh, the materials amongst various energy sources. The chart does not include the details on what wastes and byproducts are generated from each. Based on my limited background, education, experience, and understanding, I'd go with hydrogen way before nuclear. Use of recyclable, reusable, fixed natural resources once during build versus continuous generating hazardous waste during actual energy production is not an equal equivalent comparison. Uh, hydrogen is not a primary energy source. It is mainly a power storage medium. I understand how one would think that continuously producing waste is a drawback. However, the energy density of uranium makes the comparison more complicated than that. It turns out that the amount of waste produced from low-density power sources like solar and wind is significant due to their much shorter lifetimes. Another thing to consider is that we currently only burn about 5% of the energy in the uranium since it is so cheap to mine. Recycling of the uranium in fast breeder reactors would mean that the same amount of mining makes 20 times more energy. If recycling were required, nuclear would produce an order of magnitude less waste than it does now, which is still not a large amount. Now you change my options? You offered me a screenshot with a list of options to decarbonize, as you put it. I chose from your list. You didn't like my choice? I'm sorry, but if someone offers multiple choices and as the responder, I did exactly as asked and chose from that list, it is what it is. I'm not claiming anything. I'm saying an all or nothing approach isn't practical nor realistically gonna be implemented. The entire planet does not have to agree with your single answer in responding to climate crisis. I'm not espousing a single answer. It would be foolish to go all in on a single solution. We need to use all clean energy sources to displace fossil fuels. You claim nuclear was not a clean, green energy source. I'm merely stating that your claim is unsupportable. She then uh, posted uh, a reference to what is green hydrogen and how is it made and will it be the fuel of the future? And I responded by saying, by that definition, no energy source is clean or green because they will include mining, refining, and manufacturing. Your criterion is not discriminating. Based on the definition of clean and green, nuclear is neither. You are taking this too personal. I'm using the definition of hazardous and dangerous to humans and the environment. She then posted, the definition of hazardous waste from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She then followed up with a reference to making green hydrogen from solar and wind from ABC News. 
I responded by posting a figure showing volumes of chemical waste per terawatt hour for various power sources from the European Union Joint Research Committee report. Where is your screenshot of hazardous waste generated by each option? You are saying every source creates hazardous waste. Waste are not all hazardous. Reuse of wastes is renewable approach, but burying hazardous waste is not a clean or green solution. There are negative impacts on burying our problems. Where is the key to read the chart and please provide your sources and publication date unless this is actually your research. Hydrogen isn't on here that I can see. I'd like to see what your chart is supporting, i.e. what the primary subject being proposed. Thanks. She then posts a reference to um, nuclear explained, nuclear power in the environment from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Now let's define hazardous chemical waste versus chemical waste that can often be cleaned and reused. She then posts a definition of a hazardous chemical waste from the Lone Star College website. My response. My chart is from the EU Joint Research Committee reviewing whether or not nuclear qualifies for the green energy taxonomy based on the criterion that it does no significant harm to the environment. Quote, in its assessment of nuclear energy as part of its review on energy generation activities, the TEG concluded that nuclear energy has near to zero greenhouse gas emissions in the energy generation phase and can be a contributor to climate mitigation objectives. While consideration of nuclear energy from a climate mitigation perspective was therefore warranted, the TEG could not reach a definite, a definite conclusion on potential significant harm to other environmental objectives. In particular, considering the lack of operational permanent experience of high-level waste disposal sites. Therefore, nuclear energy was not included at this stage in the EU taxonomy. Instead, the TEG recommended that more extensive technical work be undertaken on the do-no-significant-harm aspects of nuclear energy. The JRC conducted a review to assess nuclear energy generation under the do-no-significant-harm criteria, considering the effects of the whole nuclear energy life cycle in terms of existing and potential environmental impacts across all objectives, with emphasis on the management of the generated nuclear and radioactive wastes. The analyses did not reveal any science-based evidence that nuclear energy does more harm to human health or to the environment than other electricity produced production technologies already included in the taxonomy as activities supporting climate change mitigation. I then linked to the report. So nuclear does no more harm than what we have? No. Nuclear does no more harm than previously approved green technologies, hydro, solar, or wind power. Feel free to read the report. It's very extensive. So, in your opinion, the negative externalities on the above-mentioned new energy production is equivalent? In the opinion of the European Union Joint Research Committee, the externalities of nuclear energy do no significant harm as compared to hydro, solar, and wind. In my opinion, the externalities of nuclear power are much less. Significantly less land will need to be cleared for electrical interconnects due to the high density of power. This means that the impact on wildlife habitat and agriculture is minimized. 
Heating of coolant water has ecological impacts, but these are small compared to the vast scale of wind and solar farms needed to match nuclear production. Plus, all the support roadways and industrial activity that will be needed to install these farms in remote areas. Plus, the footprint and pollution of gas-burning peaker plants needed to fill in the gaps when solar and wind are down. I think a combined system with nuclear baseload and variable renewable energy deployment where they have minimal ecological impacts would be best. I also think that a deep geological repository for peace of mind on spent nuclear fuel is a good idea, as long as it remains accessible to power future fuel recycling reactors when society is ready to take that step. Sounds like you have a respectable, educated opinion on this. That was a surprising thing to hear. Uh, uh, and I responded uh, convivially, thank you. I appreciate people like you who are willing to have a civil conversation on the topic. I have a limited background, education, and understanding on most of everything. I respect opinions based on facts, not just personal interests pushing an agenda. I think a diversified approach can be better than all or nothing. And that is where I concluded. So, as you can see, I spent a lot of time on that one conversation. I used references to back up my opinions, and I, I stayed on topic, and I was able to convince someone that perhaps their existing biases were wrong. You can do this too. And hopefully, over the next couple podcasts, uh, perhaps you will... Uh, learn some of the tricks uh, to be able to uh, keep your cool when you uh, wade into these conversations. As always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page, at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.